1: Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with the authors of Outbreak Culture, The Ebola Crisis, and The Next Pandemic. How are you doing today, ladies?
2: Doing good. Thank you.
1: I would like for you to pronounce your names, and we're going to get started. Sure. I'm Pardis Sabeti. And I'm Lara Salah. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in the project.
2: Sure. Laura, do
0: you want to go? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a health journalist, um, a longtime health journalist, and uh, parties and I met um, working on a project together um, uh, called News Deeply, which is an initiative um, that explores, uh, you know, sort of single subject sites that explores topics in depth. And so um, it was back in 2014 and uh, the Ebola outbreak sort of raging at that time. And uh, and there was one arm of news deeply called Ebola deeply in which Paris and I met. And so, um, you know, we worked together on a research project um, related to the outbreak and that formulated into this book.
2: yeah and and from my side that's yes that same thing so i was just i was a researcher working um in at that time during amidst the ebola outbreak um and had connected with the news deeply team building this ebola deeply and we became very passionate about how to um get good information out um and and manage almost the kind of the, the interactions between humans um uh that are occurring uh, you know, one of one of my colleagues uh, and somebody on my team had described, uh, Nathan I had described Ebola as a sort of backdrop to the soap opera that was happening between human beings. And we see that in COVID as well, right? There's this like backdrop, there's this like virus sort of premise, but it's not, there's this other interaction happening. And so um became really, really interested in, in that culture that gets created that exists already in a human culture that gets amplified during. The insidious deadly threat that our viral outbreaks, um, and that we perceive all of these things kind of go topsy turvy. Um, and so in the course of our many communications around Ebola Deeply, Lara and I talked more and more about this and that. Basically, I think Lara was like, every time I met with you, I'm like, I need to tell you about this crazy thing that just happened. And there was like yet another crazy thing I needed to tell you. And finally, Lara was like, why don't we just write a book about it? And so this is all, like, this is Lara's sort of passion, project, dream, dream of. I just wanted to vent and she <laughs> turned it into a book. So uh,
1: that's sort of how it came to be. Great. Can you tell the audience about the People Spider? When I read about Dr. Khan, I was just so impressed. Tell us about that, please.
2: Yeah, um, so Dr. Shikumar Khan is um, a colleague of mine who passed away during the Ebola outbreak, um, but who was essentially, you know, probably the world's expert on hemorrhagic fever viruses. Uh, one, you know, one of the world experts on hemorrhagic fever viruses, having treated um, countless Lassa fever patients. Um, Lassa fever is another virus like Ebola that causes high fatality and a really, you know, painful deaths. And he had been treating um, that disease for a very long time. We'd been working together on Lassa fever in Sierra Leone. And when Ebola hit, he became the natural leader of the effort um, at kind of a government hospital where we work that became the epicenter of the outbreak. And, um, and so he was uh, a colleague and a friend. Um, and, uh, and he was a lot of the motivation behind this book because one of the most sort of jarring, you know, just days before he uh, ca- caught Ebola and succumbed to it, I had a phone call with him where he wanted to just talk to me about all of this soap opera that was swirling around him, the, the the this feeling that all of these international organizations were all trying to take the lead in Ebola, but we're trying to depose him, we're trying to um, essentially badmouth him and 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 push him down, and he was just distraught. He was just so desperate for human connection, so desperate for help, and um, rather than help, you know, and he was so happy when he felt like help was coming um, only to find that instead of help, it was somebody else who he felt was once again, trying to, um, to besmirch him. And, and it, it, it just pains my heart that he, like, you know, in those last days when he was fighting for treating 80 patients and, and, and struggling to, to, you know, being a hero, that really what was happening behind the scenes was he was just, feeling completely isolated, abandoned, and attacked. Um, And that really became uh, the kind of calling card of what, what we were doing. We were trying to change that and somehow create a better culture going forward.
1: And he really did not have to be there. That was so remarkable that he stayed to help his community.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I think these top most of his family, much of his family, are um, in Europe or the United States, um, uh, and uh, you know are doing very, very well in those countries. And he had many opportunities to come and uh, work, you know, in the U.S. and elsewhere. But he uh, he really, or 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 in other countries um, like Ghana and Sierra Leone, he'd done training there, so he had many opportunities to work elsewhere. But he Sierra Leone was his home and his calling was to help his people
0: and he was explicit about that too because we we talked to family members too that were at one point just sort of telling him to to come because there's many opportunities that were in the u.s possibly for him and um and so but he did not that was just not who he was um you know based on our reporting and so um, he truly is, you know, a, 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 a leader in his community um, and uh, truly believed in the work that he's doing.
1: Now, they had this new ZMAP. Why do you think Dr. Khan was not given the choice to take that medication?
0: I think there was, um, you know, many sort of aspects at play. Um, for one, it was an experimental treatment. Um, and so the decision not to give it uh, to him um, was because there were really no protocols in place to offer experimental treatments to patients at that time. Um, And so, you know, I think that is one of the primary, uh, one of the primary reasons why that we were told as to why not. Um, But certainly there are ethical considerations there too that needed to be taken into, um, you know, that needed to be taken uh, in context. Um, And and for one, it's that Dr. Khan is a world-renowned expert um, it, it, or was a world-renowned expert in hemorrhagic fevers, and he understood um, you know, these the disease and also you know the possible treatments um, that he could possibly take at that moment. And so, you know, our belief is that if he was given the option, he probably would have consented to take it, um, the, an experimental um, treatment. But you know, he wasn't asked um is what we were told um and so there were also other you know possible plans in place like medical evacuations or um you know something that could uh help help him uh that just were not uh, executed at the time
1: what is the story about the two-year-old in the bed and the disease
0: yeah so the um this kind of tra- traces back to you know what are the, what is the origin of the spillover from uh, animal to human, and I think parties can probably speak more to that. But I think the idea is that um, this was likely the first uh, case, uh, the first human case of, of this particular strain of Ebola, likely a very kind of a spillover from a bat to a young boy who was playing in the bushes. Um, but parties go ahead. Yeah.
2: Um, I- so uh, that th- that's exactly right. That you know, at the by the time the Ebola outbreak was really uh, discovered, uncovered, um, it was when there was like enough cases spread throughout Guinea that it caught attention, and the samples were sent to Europe and uh, and tested and identified to have Ebola, and so that's when the world became aware of it. But It had been spreading for a while. Uh, And so a team of epidemiologists went and tried to trace back where did the cases come from? How could they kind of reconstruct the path that the virus had taken? And to their best knowledge, they traced it back to this small remote village in Guinea where they believe this young boy had been uh, playing in a tree inhabited by bats um, and, and believed that that's where this infection happened. And, you know, there's a lot of like very hard-earned epidemiological investigations that happen, but the truth is we'll never know. We don't have that sample. We don't know if he had Ebola. We don't know if that was the origin case, um, this was just, again, this sort of history reconstruction using circumstantial evidence. Um, but, uh, but you know, what we do know is it likely emerged in Guinea and it likely had been circulating for months. Um, and it probably took a path like this. Um, so I, I kind of use it to sort of say what the origin was, but ultimately it's, it's, it's more of a, the myth than the, the actual knowledge that that was exactly what happened.
1: Now, within that culture, they believed in healers. Why do you think there were people who believed in the healer? And what happened to the healer?
2: Well, I mean, it's, you know, I, that's, I mean, we believe in healers here too in the United States. I, one of the things I often talk about when we, uh, you know, that's so important here is that we anthropomorphize other cultures and we're like, oh, they do this weird thing. And it's like, but if you look at anything we do in the United States, I, frankly, you know, why do we? You know, even one. You know, so many things that we do could also be anthropomorphized. Like to believe in a healer to have to believe somebody that has uh, concoctions that make them better um, is natural. And frankly, personally, I'm an MD that that goes often to non-conventional um, healers than I do doctors for most things. I I think I think our medical system has its own issues. I don't. So I guess I, I just wanted to take a moment and say. Um, healers are a natural thing to have somebody who has way different ways of trying to make people better. And just like in medicine, some of them some of them work well, and some of them don't. and and some of them have a little more voodoo than than not. Um so all of that is to say that that is one of their kind of they have communities who have some history and knowledge of ways of making people better. Some of them are tied to more mystical things that you know that I might not necessarily believe in, but that's to each their their own. Um, And in this case, so just like in hospitals in in the United States where um, most infections actually happen in the hospital, you walk in, uh, you know, with a foot pain and you walk out with, um, uh, you know, the flu or MRSA. Yeah. Um, that happens with healers too, right? They're, they're seeing, they're naturally seeing a lot of people who are ill. Um, and so they become a vector and that's essentially what, um, you know, what likely, you know, was happening all, all throughout the Ebola outbreak Those different places of healing, whether it be healers or hospitals were becoming, uh, sources of infection.
0: I also think too, it's important to mention that, um, you know, th- these are, you know, healers are community leaders and people are the whom people trust. And so I think that that's really important that you would go and see somebody who is ill or you would go and visit, you know, somebody um, whom you trust to help you in in your circumstances and who's probably helped before. And so I think, like Partiz is saying, it's a very natural thing to have happened. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, community leaders played an essential role in helping to curb the outbreak later on. And so um, I don't think we... Uh, you can't underestimate the power, uh, regardless of whether it's medicinal or whatever it might be, of of community leaders in in outbreak uh, containment and response.
1: What was the mental health of the population before the pandemic and after?
0: So I think that um, first they were kind of dealing with the fallout of a civil war. And so certainly, you know, there's heightened... uh, you know, uncertainty, heightened distrust. Um, but, you know, a cert- but definitely when you introduce a pathogen right into an environment like this already, um, there's certainly fallout from, uh, from, you know, an outbreak that's raged for two plus years. Um, so we definitely saw cases um, where the mental health, depression rates, um, and other types of uh, of mental health disorders increased over the outbreak. And it's not very dissimilar to kind of what we're seeing now in terms of the the mental health effects or the fallout um, from the COVID pandemic as well, right? Because, you know, there were situations just like here in which, you know, there are forced quarantines um, and uh, and that itself, or isolation, and that itself can and can change and affect the psyche of, of the community, so... Um, you know, there's also the stigmatization, too, of, of uh, individuals who survived Ebola, right? It's one thing to, you know, mourn the loss of those who died, but also if you were among those that survived, um, you know, there was a stigma there um, that you could, you know, possibly be infected or, you know, spread it or, you know, misinformation sort of led to that as well. Um so, and, and then there's also levels of survivor survivor guilt as well that we noted. So, um, so certainly in, in any outbreak environment, there's going to be a mental health effects um, that go beyond just you know the virus infecting and getting you sick, and and in some cases, fatal fatality rates going up.
1: Now, during this crisis, explain the importance of culture. In a crisis,
2: yeah. I mean, uh, I would say it's paramount that uh, ultimately that the culture that we create can either stop or um, or or enhance the spread of a virus. Um, ultimately, like you know, we we see this in just the way that we interact with each other. Um, I, I think we have seen here in the United States the that. Um, uh, our culture is frayed and our trust for each other is frayed and that creates real problems um, and and really allows a, a virus to perpetuate. And one of the things I often say is that a virus will expose and exploit the cracks in our society, in the sort of the, the in our feelings of justice um, and our feelings of trust and cooperation. So we will not, the, you know, the, the thing is at the end of the day, COVID is this sort of, you know, is expressed as a once in a century event, but to me, it's just a warning. It's just a a warning of what is possible. But we have not yet seen an outbreak that um, will take out twenty somethings the way that uh, the you know uh, nineteen eighteen flu did, or take our children. Um, and and we have not seen something where you legitimately are afraid to go to a store ever. Um, and so we are going to contend with something. Uh, you know, in a, I believe in, in our lifetimes or in our children's lifetimes, we're gonna contend with something of that nature. And if we don't have these things sorted by then, um, and uh, then we are in, in real trouble.
1: Now, you talked about gathering data and why that's so important in the pandemic. Can you elaborate on this a little more?
2: Yeah, I mean, we are nothing without our without our data. We we um, ultimately, you know, the uh, it's so critical to have visibility um, into what um, where infections are, who's getting infected, why, what are the risk levels, where, you know, what geographically where are they they localized. Um, just understanding the biology of these viruses, and so everything, every decision we should be made should be made with the most information possible. And when that data is um, hoarded or co-opted or, you know, or misinformation happens or any any kind of, any um, hits at the integrity of that data or the accessibility of that data puts us at, in a weaker position against a virus. Um, and
1: so it, it is critical. Now, how can the people in leadership navigate the pandemic effectively.
2: Laura, do you want to take that one? I can, you know, I cannot go, but you you'll you <laughs> yeah. have a good answer for this.
0: I'm yeah. Wondering. Yeah. Well there certainly have been frameworks that have already been created. Um, you know, post the Ebola outbreak, um, you know, there have been so many after action reports um, that have come, you know, and they've all the, the bottom line was that you know we're not prepared for something larger than that. Um, and I remember when we uh, had the manuscript for our book, um, it sounded alarmist to some folks, unlike <laughs> some of the things that we had written. Um, I remember some comments he got back on on some of these uh or some background you know conversations that we were having and it's like this sounds kind of alarmist um and uh and so it's an interesting position to be placed in um and so you know we certainly have a few different guiding principles um and culture i think is at the heart of all of that um which is what you know what parties just described as like one of the most important things um and uh, and, and leadership in some positions, whatever that might look like, right? So, uh, in in uh, in West Africa, we talked about how uh, faith-based leaders, for example, are leaders, right? They don't necessarily have to hold positions in government, for example, in order to be considered a leader. That whatever that might be defined within a certain group, um, it's so important to uh, you know to establish cultures, right? Um, of uh, of, of readiness, resilience, response—you um, know—depending on the, the the environment that you know we're we're working with, I and mean, that looks that looks very different. Um, but from a from a global perspective, I mean, we don't really have to this day, right, a, a global governance system, right, for for responding to to outbreaks, um, or epidemics, or even pandemics, right? We kind of have this idea of what we all should be doing, but um, there's not this main level of accountability, right? There's no system of accountability that's in place. Um, And so, uh, you know, what's to say that there aren't going to be bad actors, right? Who can get away with things in times of chaos or confusion or heightened pressure situations um, that they otherwise might not have been able to get away with in times of quiet. Um, And so really it's, it's important for us as one of the guiding principles um, in uh, creating a uh, a resilient culture is to have a, a level of a global level of uh, of accountability um, is incredibly important.
1: Now, what is the overall message you would like to leave the audience with after reading your book?
2: Yeah, I think it's opening their eyes to that realization that this this is hard and this these things happen um in a way of essentially like, I think in in our last chapter we really talk about um like kind of the, what what we think are guiding principles and I think the one is just uh, is understanding those realities so that we can counteract them at every step. understand the realities, the harsh realities of an outbreak, the fact that there's an insidious deadly threat that weaponizes, your neighbor against you, you know, that makes you a weapon. If it, if if a virus infects you um, that is, is scary and frightening to people that has a lot of stigma and shame and, and dangers, but then, then kind of seeing on the other side of that, but, but you are my neighbor and you are my friend and you are my colleague. And the best way that we can stop this virus is from working together and seeing each other as, with, with that full humanity. And so I think for us, it's really understanding why it is that we can descend into this toxic culture and then and then trying to find that guiding light back to working together in cooperation uh, where we need to go. Um, so I, I think that would be, I don't know if that's like, it's not that short, but it's really, to, I guess the short version of it would be to understand the realities and challenges of working together cooperatively amidst an outbreak and one by one, kind of unlocking those pieces so that we can, because it is critical to our success.
0: Yeah. And now I think it's more relevant than ever because we have all lived through right, something. Um, I think initially, you know, trying to help, uh, have that message resonate can be incredibly difficult if you haven't lived through it, right? Or you view it from the lens of an outsider looking in, like what, you know, what we might have seen our readership possibly um, in looking at the Ebola outbreak. But the reality is we're all part of this outbreak culture. We've all seen this in action now, right? And we've all experienced in some ways, you know, the, the heroic first responders, right? Um, the, the need to protect our protectors, right? We, we now have, have witnessed that and, uh, and, and have lived through that, right? That incredibly trying, uncertain time, the fear, um, fear of the unknown, fear of the known sometimes, right? the ability that we, the feeling that you're, we're not acting quick enough, or maybe we're acting too quickly. Right. Um, and so, uh, um, and, and now we're experiencing the fallout, right. Of, of what is, um, you know, what this is, uh, because we know that pandemics and even outbreaks, right. They don't end just, we don't flip the switch and they end right. They sort of taper and, you know, it, it's not this, okay, and we're done, right, the next day. It's going to, it takes a, a while. Um, and so uh, now that we're all sort of a part of it, and we've all felt that feeling, um, I think that if if anything is a call to action in our book, right? That, that this is the time now that we, we all know, so we should all be invested in what's what's next.
1: Well, I've taken up a lot of your time what's the next project that you will be working on?
2: I think that um, both Laura and I, you know, continue to believe in the message of what we're trying to do here and thinking about ways of um, understanding and unpacking the, the, these, this, this culture and how it emerges again and again. Um, and so I think we, we're, we're continuing to shine a light on it, investigate it as it comes up, do surveys to really get a sense of what's out there and what's happening. Um, but then I think be part of that process of making the world work collectively better together. I think one one particular passion project I so I do re- so I, I do do research um in viruses like Ebola and SARS-CoV-2. And I'm trying to build diagnostics and surveillance systems and technologies. Uh, but one of the big things I've I've leaned into during um this outbreak is education. Um, and so um uh, a team in my lab has built um, an entire curriculum, a textbook on outbreak science um, for high schoolers, but also curriculum for middle schoolers. And um, uh, that is now being piloted in with the Department of Education of Louisiana and rolled out as a statewide course in the fall. Um, we developed these simulations where you can simulate an outbreak using uh, an app on your phone, the Bluetooth based app on your phone, where you can actually simulate an entire outbreak on your school campus and a lot of schools have done that and see what that would look like and to talk about all the things that happen um and uh and so we've we've been doing a lot of this kind of work to be able to in a low-stakes setting talk about those things we've been running this since 2015 and we've run a lot of simulations that look a lot like SARS-CoV-2 and we had immunity passports and military coups and walk-ins and all of everything that we experience in outbreak culture, we experienced, um, even in these games, in these low stakes games. And so we really actually are doing a lot of work on the science, but also the culture to really help people understand what's going to happen if an outbreak of even greater magnitude ever appears and how would we proactively work to create better systems.
0: And I think the great thing about, um, what we've done, um, together is that somehow like we always find a way to, it always comes back. Like we always find a way to get back in touch with each other about something. Like um, I feel like things come full circle. And so even after this book, it's always, um, you know, things we always point back to each other. About so that's a, that's the great thing about being a health journalist and, and working um, with uh, and, and you know, having amazing sources, but also, you know, working in collaboration with, um, with science uh, scientists and so. Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of science communication. And so, um, that is my, uh, you know, that's, I think my life's calling. And so, um, what has helped me, um, in our collaboration is just to move forward on, uh, working on projects now on covering, um, Epidemics, though not this particular project that I'm working on, I can't say too much, is not uh, related to infectious disease, but is just, um, you know, in magnitude of a large uh, and worthwhile uh, topic to to cover. So um, and, and somehow, I don't know, parties and I will always,
2: <laughs> even on you that, know, show, I'm like, music. I'm so in, I'm so into everything Laura's doing. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I'm, I'm in on parties. So it's, uh, we're, we always come back to each other in some way. So I think that's the great thing.
1: Well, thank you for being on the show and thank you for all the information you shared in your book. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Peter.